Well, good morning, North Lake. Thank you for inviting us into your living room this morning. And because that's our setting, I'm going to go all Mr. Rogers on you today and make it a little more intimate. Um, but I really want to thank our tech team today, the guys who are working so hard uh, today and have worked in the past to make this even a possibility for us today to worship together, though we are apart. And we are choosing this morning not to worship together um, as an expression of our love for God as he commands us to honor those who are in authority over us. Um, and it's an expression of our trust and loving obedience to our greater authority who is our, our great God. It's also an expression of our love for neighbors. The last thing that we would want to do this morning would be to needlessly imperil a neighbor whom Jesus calls us to love. So. Until you get further information, this is how we'll worship for the next week or so. Uh, stay tuned for details on that in the future. But it's no mere happenstance for us as a church family that uh, last week we reflected on these verses, Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So we heard last week that the, the great victory that Jesus won on the cross for us has freed us from the greater fear of death and all of its lesser siblings, including fear of the coronavirus, right? And if, if this kind of fear is a special vulnerability for you, I want you to know there's no, there's no shame in that. Just recognize Recognize that that is your vulnerability and feed, don't feed your fear, feed your faith these days. Um, endless surfing of news feeds and blogs about the virus will not serve your soul well. The promises of God will. Okay? Reflect on those, meditate on those, pray those. And so as we open the scriptures together this morning, I'd like to pray the passage that we looked at last week over us all, so if you'll bow with me in prayer. Lord, we are children, and we are flesh and blood. We're so thankful that Jesus, our Savior, partook of the same things, becoming like us, one of us, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. We're thankful this morning that we have been delivered from the fear of death and all of its lesser siblings, Thank you, God. Thank you for that mercy. We cling to it this day. We offer it to our friends and our family gladly. You are our great hope, we pray. Now, open your word to us, Lord, by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, we're going to continue our series on the atonement today. Um, this is the great loving work that Jesus did for us on the cross to bring us to God. And so far, we've seen Christ has been our example on the cross. Um, he is our victor on the cross. And today, we want to look at him as our ransom and our redeemer on the cross. And those two ideas of, of ransom and redemption, they overlap in the bullseye of price, of a price paid to purchase something, especially to purchase freedom. One of the most beautiful portraits of this idea of a price paid 
is in the early chapters of the book of Hosea. It's one of my favorite portions of scripture, perhaps one of my favorites in the, in the entire Bible, let alone the Old Testament. I love the way uh, Professor James Montgomery Boyce put it. He said, the third chapter of Hosea is, in my judgment, the greatest chapter in the Bible because it portrays the greatest story in the Bible, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people in the most concise and poignant form to be found anywhere. Which is all the more fascinating because Hosea lived some seven to 800 years before Jesus became a man. He was a prophet, um, someone that God speaks to and then speaks for God to his people. And sometimes God asks of them to speak more than words. Uh, object lessons with powerful visual imagery, shocking imagery. And at, at God's request, the prophets sometimes would go to great lengths to communicate his truth to his hard-hearted people. So Old Testament prophets at different times did different things. Jeremiah was asked by God to wear a wooden yoke as he walked about. And Isaiah walked about naked for three years. Um, Ezekiel lay on his left side for 390 days and then on his right for 40 days, all the while bound with ropes. All of this at God's direction to communicate his message. And Hosea got married. Okay. But th this is no ordinary marriage. Look with me in your Bibles at Hosea chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So at the beginning of Hosea's ministry, Israel's at the back end of a season of peace and prosperity, but uh, prosperity rather, but the people were far from God. Um, they were described as being in a spiritual stupor, riddled with sin and idolatry. And into this setting, with shocking clarity, God told his prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute. Professor D.A. Carson says that when the Lord first speaks to Hosea, his language is blistering. The NIV, which reads, go marry a promiscuous woman, is too tame. The Jerusalem Bible, he says, is closer to the Hebrew. Go marry a whore and get children with a whore, for the country itself has become nothing but a whore by abandoning Yahweh. And You can bet that this got Hosea's attention, right? This is early in his ministry. It may well have been Hosea's first message from God. It says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea. So I'm sure he's double-checking his sources, thinking, really? My first message? Marry a whore? Um, some suggest that she's not yet a prostitute. But rather, this is what she would soon become. But I, I'm not sure that's any great consolation to be told by God, marry this girl. Yeah, yeah, the one who will become a prostitute. But at any rate, this was at the very least her character, if not her vocation, even before Hosea would take her to be his bride. Let's be clear. Gomer is not a reformed prostitute. That would have at least had a redemptive twist. No, she is one who is active in that profession. And so... 
I'm sure against the counsel of all of his friends and his family, and in a stunning act of obedience to God, Hosea takes a prostitute named Gomer to be his bride. And he loves her. And she bears three children. And she gives those three children, Hosea does, extraordinary names. But essentially, only one of those children, the first, does it say that she bore to Hosea. The latter two, the story simply says, she bore them. And you wonder, were were they not his? You know, when you are married to a woman like Gomer, um, you never really know. But all the indications are that in spite of all this, Hosea loves her. And in spite of her dalliances and her rendezvous, her betrayals, um, he loves her. But then, to add injury to insult, his new bride, who has been so undeservedly loved, leaves him in spite of his love for her. She leaves him in search of other lovers. The language Hosea uses as he writes about Gomer's actions um, are are graphic. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 5. Their mother has played the whore. She has conceived them. She who has conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers. And so now Hosea bears the shame of desertion atop of all others, on top of the doubts and the questions, the bitterness and the anger. And again, God speaks to him. In chapter 3, he speaks to him and the way is made clear to him as to what he must now do what must have been an even more difficult message in the first. Look at chapter 3, the first two verses. The Lord said to me, Hosea writes, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. In verse 2 it says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. Um, So Hosea is to pursue his wayward bride once again, and he is now to buy her back. And it's that little phrase in our story that I want us to slow down and think about this morning together. Simply this words, so I bought her. It's this phrase that shifts our attention from Hosea to Jesus. The whole purpose of Hosea's Acting out this story is to show us how God loves his wayward, undeserving people. Chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love the cakes of raisins. Homer's marriage, or Hosea's rather, marriage to Gomer is one of those enacted parables, those lived out parables that God would sometime ask of his prophets. They're graphic in imagery. They're freighted with meaning. Um, Sometimes it took something this shocking to get the message across to his hard-hearted people. So, So don't miss this, Northway. Through the story of Hosea and Gomer, Yahweh is shouting to us about how he loves his undeserving people, about how he loves you, And how he loves me. In Hosea's story, God dazzles us with the boldest colors. He shouts to us at the highest volume so that we will not miss how it is that he loves us. So I bought her. 
And that little phrase brings a handful of questions to mind. Questions like, well, to whom was that price or that ransom paid? For whom? By whom? What was she ransomed from? What was she ransomed for, to? At what cost? And why bother paying the price at all? And it's this morning as we look at those questions, they all seem to point us past Hosea to the one who loves us with an even greater love. The answers to all these questions, I think, point us towards Christ. Remember, it was Jesus himself that said of himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this morning together, let's walk through those kinds of questions together as we look at the way Hosea loved Gomer and think together about how long and wide and high and deep is the love of Christ for us. Okay. First question. So who was that ransom paid to? Um, Hosea pays someone. We don't really know who. Presumably it was Gomer's slave master, or as Professor D.A. Carson puts it baldly, her pimp. What about, though, the ransom of Christ for us? Sometimes people wonder, who is that ransom paid to? And long ago, there was a theory that suggested that that ransom was paid to Satan. But that answer really is fraught with troubles. I, I like the way Pastor John Piper addresses it with his usual candor. He says, just a word about the ransom being paid to Satan. No way, okay? No way is the death of Christ a negotiation with Satan or a payment to Satan. When Christ meets the demonic forces in his ministry, they don't say, did you bring the money? He commands and they go. No negotiations. He continues and says, when Paul describes what happened to Satan on the cross in Colossians 2.15, he says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is total defeat, not negotiation. Piper says, in my mind, there's just no thought in the Bible about God paying the devil a ransom. I suppose there's a sense in which you could say that the ransom could be seen as being paid not to the devil, but to God by God. So the ransom paid for us is paid by God in Christ to God himself. It's the same way, uh, same sense, for instance, is that the sacrifices of the Old Testament were offered to God in atonement for sin. In that same way, the sacrifice of Christ is offered to God as well, deterring his just judgment and his wrath from our lives. But the interesting thing about this is this really isn't a question the Scripture directly answers in Gomer's case or in ours in Christ. And the emphasis of Scripture is, is elsewhere. So there's a second question. Who was the ransom paid for. And in our story, that's obvious. It would be Gomer, right? It would be the whore. Not even just a whore, but one who, having been rescued from that life, willingly returns to it now as an unfaithful wife, now an adulteress on top of it. See, the great understatement here would be to say that the price was paid for someone undeserving. Indeed, Perhaps this is the least likely candidate imaginable, a whore who is now an adulterous wife. 
So what about the ransom paid by Christ for us? It's really interesting. This ransom language shows up in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul writes, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And here's the ransom language. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And it's fascinating that Paul uses the language of purchase, of a price paid for a bunch of people, some of whom were tripping off to visit prostitutes and attempting to justify it. Paul's saying that Jesus bought a bunch of people who still wanted to visit prostitutes even after coming to faith in Jesus. It just helps us see God chooses in spite of, not because of. One of the best illustrations I heard of this comes from a guy named Craig Larson. He writes about an ad for the U.S. Marines, and it features this slogan, Earned, Never Given. The idea being, if you want to become a Marine, be prepared to earn that name through sacrifice, hardship, and training. And if you get it, you deserve it. But he says, if you want to become a Christian, you must have the exact opposite attitude. For the message of the gospel is, given, never earned. So Hosea's God, Gomer's God, our God, loves the undeserving people who are beyond the hope of ever earning it, of ever being good enough for God. So this morning it's so important that you you don't think you're too worthless or too far gone, that you're somehow beyond the reach of the love of God. That's the point here. God is wooing a whore. No one is beyond God's amazing love. He knows his wife here is a harlot. That's just how God loves. He loves even the undeserving in Gomer's life and in ours. Clearly what Paul said rings true. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let me bring up a third question. What was she ransomed from? You know, you can only imagine what life was like for Gomer after she left Hosea. I mean, it must have been a terribly dark turn for her to find herself in whatever kind of slavery it was that required Hosea to have to buy his own wife back. Hosea, that was his challenge. He, he was to pursue his wayward bride and buy her back from that life. Okay. That language of purchase, of buying her back, cracks the door and lets us just get a glimpse into the room into which Gomer had descended. You wonder, uh, was Hosea wandering the streets at night from alley to alley and brothel to brothel searching for his bride? Did he find her there? 
enslaved to another man, used by other men? Or was it at midday at the slave auction, wearing the garb of a whore or rags of a harlot used up, perhaps, perhaps even as slaves sometimes were stripped naked before all the men of the city? And there this betrayed husband stands, and he participates in the bidding to buy back his own bride from another man. And God says, go again, Hosea, go again. And you wonder, could that language mean that she'd done even this before? But because of his love for God and his wife, Hosea wins the bidding and he takes her home again to love her still. And this language of slavery, vivid language of slavery, is used of the life Jesus bought us from too. In Titus, in the New Testament, we read that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us from that life. See, we, like Gomer, were enslaved by a debt we could not pay, chained to a life we could not get free from. And Jesus, like Hosea, paid it all. Right? And that's the next couple of questions. Who paid that price? And how much was it? Of course, Hosea paid it for Gomer, and it was a price she could not pay herself. It's interesting the detail that we're given about how much he paid. Look at uh, verse 2 in chapter 3. He says, it says, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And historians tell us it would be really unusual for a slave price to be paid with a mix of cash and a grain like this. The, the suggestion is that maybe he didn't have enough cash. Maybe he spent all that he had and still didn't have enough, so he had to supplement his bid with grain. And I wonder, was the grain his food? Now, Psalm 49 picks up this idea of ransom in the Old Testament, and it makes a really interesting observation about the ransom we need as God's people. It says, truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. And then a few verses later it says, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, the power of death. The price due to free us from our slavery to sin and death is beyond our ability to pay. It is literally a God-sized payment. Only God has pockets this deep and a love this great. Peter describes it beautifully absolutely beautifully in, in verse 18 of his first letter, first chapter. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Author Fleming Rutledge has, a, has written an amazing book on the crucifixion and she describes this great payment for our freedom when she writes, We have referred several times to the link between the particular horrors of crucifixion and the idea of cost. 
Only the death of the Son of God at the outermost extreme of human depravity and divine self-abandonment is commensurate with the gravity and power of sin. This is the price of redemption that is being accomplished. See, Gomer's dilemma is, is ours. The old hymn puts it beautifully. I had a debt I could not pay. He paid the debt he did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, all day long. Jesus Christ paid the debt that I could never pay. Amen. Lastly, what was Gomer redeemed for? And why? Why bother? Um, Which is the question, what kind of life are we redeemed to live? And Gomer was redeemed beautifully to be restored to the one who loves her so. It's symbolic of the way God longs for a restored relationship with his people. In chapter 2, God says of his people, I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. It's a contrast with that threefold shocking reference that started the first chapter, right? Um, about whoring. Three times. Um, find a wife who's a whore. Have children of a whore because the land is a whore. And here God says, I betroth you. I betroth you. I betroth you. To me forever I love in love and mercy and faithfulness. The language of the most intimate of relationships is used here. And you shall know the Lord. You know, one of my favorite scenes of redemption on film ever is from the older version of Les Miserables, uh, where the ex-prisoner, Jean Valjean, who's played by Liam Neeson, he's just robbed the priest who had taken him in, stole all of his silver, and now um, Jean Valjean has been rearrested and returned to the scene of his crime. Watch this beautiful clip. So we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. Caught him. But I had my eye on this man. God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monsignor? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed. That you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gilo, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hi. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You really let him go? Didn't you understand that, Bishop? Madam Gino, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you.
You'll never forget it. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? What might you do this? Jean Argent, my brother. You no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought you soul. I ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. How much more those of us who were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Um, and so we're new men, new women, right? You know, the life that God redeemed Gomer for is spelled out in chapter 3, verse 3. He says to her, you must dwell as mine for many days, Hosea says. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. She is called to a life of faithfulness to her husband. And it would be horribly wrong on so many levels for her to return to the life that he had just purchased her from. She's been redeemed to live with her husband under his loving care and provision, to know his forgiveness and protection and provision and mercy and love, always and forever. Same, same for you and me, right? We have been redeemed to live a life under the love and care of our God, to know his forgiveness and mercy and peace and hope and protection and guidance and love free from bondage to sin and death and fear, always and forever. That's the life that he bought for us. Why? Why would God do that for us? He loves us. He loves even the undeserving. That's just who he is. It's not because of who we are. It's more in spite of who we are. Some have called God's love unconditional, it might better be called contra-conditional. He loves us in spite of what we've done, not because of it. Author Nancy Guthrie sums it up well for us. She says, God has loved you when you were not even looking for him. He chose you and determined to make you his own. He wooed you to himself with gospel promises of mercy instead of punishment belonging instead of estrangement. He loved you by redeeming you from your enslavement to all lesser lovers. And he is loving you even now as he cuts away from your character every lingering tether to your old way of life. And such is the love of God for you and for me. For all gomers everywhere that he would pay the great price of the death of his son on the cross so that we could be free from sin and death and fear and live a new life with our loving Father. Church, will you pray with me as we wrap up our time? Jesus, we give thanks to you for you have paid it all and all to you we owe. 
Sin had left a crimson stain, and now you have washed it white as snow. Jesus, you have paid it all, and all to you we owe. Sin had left on our very souls a crimson stain, but you have washed it white as snow. You have washed it white as snow. White as snow. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Thanks be to God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray.